Hello listeners, this is Kim C and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that hangs on every word of His Majesty, the King. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 22 where we've headed slightly too far off the Appalachian Trail in the little novel that could called The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. So I'm really excited to talk about this book with you because not only do I feel it's a great summertime read but really it's an ambitious artistic slice of some very unique king cake. It's short, it's mostly exposition, and I think this book reads like very much um, like a palate cleanser or a book breath mint, if you will. There is only, for the most part, one central character and we're with her the entire time. The setting is the deep woods and because so much is stripped away in terms of additional characters and dialogue and other locations, we kind of get this meditative focus on Trisha and her survival. Plus, coincidentally, it takes place in the month of June in the novel, and I love when that happens in real life, when real life and reading life coincide. And also because I was a little older than Trisha around the time of this novel, but not by much. So it really allows me to personally return to where I might have been in June of 1998. And uh, there's a lot of similarities there, as well as big questions to what I would have done in Trisha's situation. Personally, I don't think I would have been as brave as she, but you never know. Nature can be a cruel mistress. She can make cowards and heroes out of unlikely characters, and I guess it all depends on what you've got inside you. Nature will pull it out. And Trisha is someone who really has a lot of bravery in her for sure. So the girl who loved Tom Gordon, it being just over a little uh, past 215 pages, can really open up and reveal a lot of strong stuff if we focus on it. So if you're a King reader uh, that kind of loses interest when you find out there isn't a lot of plot, I do challenge you to read this with a different focus in mind and see what you can see. Uh, I just finished reading it for the second time this week and I had the idea, if you guys remember from childhood, Magic Eye, either the books or the pictures. I think this book is somewhat Magic Eye-esque. It looks like a jumbled mess up close, but the longer you look at it, the more your eye focuses on it and then you sort of see the image that's hidden in there something deeper and for me Tom Gordon is such a hidden gem because of this it's really rich um, because you have to but you have to follow Trisha step by step to get that richness I think and in my research and in, in my experience of talking to other King fans about this novel some fans are a little reluctant to do that because 
we've crossed out a lot of essential favorite components of a King novel. We don't have a lot of horror, we don't have a lot of characters, we don't have a lot of mystery, nor do we have a lot of plot. And I think the more we cross out, the more readers get a bit nervous and quick to close the door on it. But my goal in this episode is to explore why we should give it more of ourselves and just see what happens if we do that and if it can unlock some some cool stuff, some treasure, if you will. So if in your reading past you ever read any novels in school from the author Jack London, I'm really reminded of him a lot in this story. So Jack London wrote The Call of the Wild and White Fang, which are very good movies if you haven't read the novels. He also has some other short stories featuring um, basically nature winning and freezing cold snow destroying everyone. But most all of his stories feature the Alaskan Canadian Yukon where it's man versus nature in man's attempt to plunder nature for his own gain, typically in the form of gold uh, mining. And uh, nature wins brutally, of course, but Jack London himself actually headed up to the Yukon as a young 20-something and in search of gold. He got really sick, and but he definitely lived an adventurous life up there. So his writing really sort of um, got me thinking when I was going through Tom Gordon. He explores that isolated human being in the great and mysterious, treacherous outdoors. And uh, his writing is stemming from those survival narratives that kind of stem from the very first survival narrative, which is Robinson Crusoe, which was written in the 1600s, I think. And um, that one's about survival, most definitely, but mostly a new frontier. Um, if you survive it and then adventures follow and so with Tom Gordon I think we have that here only it's much stronger because our protagonist is such a vulnerable little child and we have an introduction of not only the deep dark woods but a predator in said woods so as the novel goes deeper into the time Trisha's out there deeper into the unknown woods when the dark, in quotes, really comes out, it uh, becomes much more than man versus nature. So we definitely have all of the components of a Jack London-esque survival story, man versus nature, but then King, being the genius, just amps it up with something more sinister and something that's even deeper and darker, which is pretty cool. So. If you haven't guessed already, I love this book. Uh, you can really read it in a day. Um, I took two days because I was making notes, but I, I think that if I would have pushed and did it in a day, I would have equally enjoyed the experience, um, the adventure. For me, it's, it's a really special story. It's small but mighty, and given our <laughs> reality climate, uh, for me, it was a really wonderful escape. Even though the woods are slightly ominous and foreboding and quite terrifying in certain parts, 
Trisha and her journey have some wonderful moments of solitude and reflection, which was most welcome. Uh, for example, one of my favorite parts in the book is when Trisha is really, basically, it's starting to get really tough. She runs out of food and, and water, she has no liquid, and she finds a brook and she's thrilled and ecstatic and of course she absolutely just drinks until her heart's content, until her belly's bursting and she becomes very sick and just pukes up everything in her stomach and she gets really sick um but she after that she finds food and it when she's eating the food having vomited up everything hours prior the food literally brings her back to life physically but emotionally as well this little girl it just never in her nine years of life has she been so grateful for sustenance and it's such an adult moment for sweet little Trisha because she's so humbled and grateful and she just treasures her little backpack full of checkerberries and beech nuts and it's very touching because all she can do in that moment and she it's so this moment is so much bigger than her she doesn't really have the context or the vocabulary for it but little Trisha is just saying thank you to the world to the open air just to the gift of eating and staying alive and for me there's some there's some real deep zones of power in that and uh, this little book was a real palate cleanser for me and I recommend highly if you are just coming off an epic long novel and you've got a book hangover I really think that Tom Gordon is a wonderful uh, palate cleanser to get you back to your normal schedule programming but the simplicity of this story and its subtle power is uh, quite compelling but also wipes the slate clean um, for your next epic novel so in terms of popular opinion this is an underrated title for sure I know it's a bit of a lukewarm one for Stephen King fans mostly due to the framework of the book the ending but I'm hoping today that maybe our investigation of the text will allow readers to give it another go or if they have read it to perhaps reconsider the rating they gave it because um, I know it's pretty middle of the ground for a lot of King fans. So this novel is not conventional horror. Um, some fans of King will say it's not horror at all, but I disagree, guys. I consider it a survival narrative with a lot of subtle horror elements in it via the terrors and violence of nature. And especially when we have this dangling idea in the background, this very sort of subtle presence of something paranormally malevolent lurking in the in the woods. So we've got the horrors of nature, which I'm going to go into in greater detail coming up, but then King also introduces a monster in the shadows, and it might not be as intensely um, saturated as other villains or other sort of uh, spooky moments, but uh, we'll talk more about that. I do think it works and I do think it does give the novel a bit of horror. 
So ratings for Tom Gordon mostly stay around the three star area. Thankfully, there's a lot of four stars as well. But in my experience, when I discuss the book, I find people are usually in two camps. They either love it, like myself, and they got a lot out of it, or they didn't care for it at all. And it kind of just didn't linger very long in their minds as they were reading it, and it was quickly sort of... Um, flushed away, sadly. Um, I've also noticed a little bit of a gender bias on this one. Ladies like myself, I think, see themselves in Trisha, so it hits closer, um, especially how young and vulnerable she is, and uh, it's, it's very hard to not sort of internalize um, her personal struggle. But the men I've met don't really care for it. Um, so not that that's, you know, the gender issue has a lot of weight. It's neither here nor there. It's just a personal observation. I would say uh, out of the, the 10 dudes I've asked about this, um, maybe one <laughs> enjoyed it. So just, just something to sort of throw up in the air there and... Um, see if that's valid or if it might just be a <laughs> contaminated focus group <laughs> for for this novel but for me i think this novel requires a bit more deeper latching on um when i look at king readers i find most of us get really used to being carried and pulled along uh, on these novels epically so we meet a million characters all kinds of locations, oftentimes entire towns, sometimes multiple towns. And a lot of these books really feel like Christmas dinner, where you just get immensely fed on delicious food. But with Trisha's journey, King is really asking the reader to follow her on their own, and there isn't a lot on the table. There's like a couple snacks, but I, in my sort of um, brainstorming, I think King is asking the readers of this book to fast a little bit on this reading journey. And instead of him constantly feeding us constant readers, he's feeding us in mass quantities. I think with this one, he's asking that you hyper-focus on what he is giving you and hyper-focus and ration the substance he's providing with these small little chapters and with Trisha's journey. And it's quite fascinating. It really is. So, on the canvas he's painting, there isn't much there, but the forest and these, this little girl, and I think a lot of readers in this novel kind of brattily cross their arms and pout and say, is that it? And they just kind of park it, waiting for the circus to pull up right in front of them and for the fireworks and the show to start. But for me, this little novel invites you on a journey. It's a simple journey into the unknown wilderness where there isn't much that happens, but it's the solitude, the elements, the vulnerability, the growing feelings of dread and being lost and forgotten and dying alone that make this little book so large and in charge. So, so one thing we need to mention about this story is how woven it is into the fabric of baseball and the game of baseball itself. Baseball really becomes this hopeful symbol that carries Trisha through, uh, specifically finding immense hope through her favorite player, Tom Gordon. 
So for some of my overseas listeners, um, baseball, as you're probably aware, is super American. I think the closest we can get with other nations is cricket. So if you're familiar with cricket, you're on the right track. But baseball is everything to this story, and baseball is everything to a lot of Americans. And I, I think Steve is really channeling his own love for the sport with this story. He's a super passionate Boston Red Sox fan, and the Boston Red Sox, as well as the Yankees, are America's most iconic rivalries. But baseball has been in America's past since the 1870s. And many people, especially young men and their sons, have deep, deep ties to baseball. It's one of those forever things in American families. I, when I was thinking about baseball, I think it's stronger than football, which depending on where you grew up might not be the case, but football is the sort of loud, aggressive, really overly testosterone guy in the corner who you think gets all the attention because he is very popular. But I think baseball is one of those just internal Americana things. It's just like this unkillable redwood tree. It's, I, yeah, for me, I think it's more solid. Also because football is pretty aggressive, American football. Uh, a lot of testosterone, very aggressive. Um, whereas baseball is for families. It's for all ages. It's, it's uh, very inclusive. So there's that. But with baseball, we've got just this immense long history here in America. The baseball cards, the statistics, the whole experience of the game, um, which if you've never been to a professional baseball game, some people think they're boring. Sometimes you could get a dud game, but it's really fun and it's probably the most American wholesome experience you could get. So if you're visiting from overseas, maybe someday when the world returns to normal, um, definitely go to a professional baseball game. It's really fun, it's really old, but it's very uniquely American. And uh, when I was reading about Trisha's love for the sport and Tom Gordon, I think I was reminded of how it's one of the great parts of American culture for sure. It's super unique to us. But um, for those of you who have read another, sh there's a baseball-themed short story from King called Blockade Billy that I remember enjoying, but I wasn't sure if that one had a hopeful tone with it. But now that I've kind of been inundated with baseball again, I want to explore that one on the podcast for sure. But the dedication to this novel, King uh, has uh, says that for Owen, his second son, um, Owen taught me more about baseball than I ever taught him, which is interesting. Uh, so I, I like the father-son connection there and incorporating my own dad for a second. If you're, uh, when you have someone in your family who really likes sports and you talk sports with them and you're, you know, family, blood-related, I think it definitely allows one to rise in favorite status, so I detected that a little bit with Owen and Steve King. Um, 
the sports bond between fathers and sons is very strong especially if the father played and the son played and uh in my in my own family that is quite true uh with my brothers and my father but we see that with trisha's character as well with her father larry they both have that common love for baseball and trisha's dad supports her love of tom gordon and he participates in it and he enjoys the sport with her, which was pretty cool. But I love that Trisha's a young girl that enjoys the sport. And what's really unique when I started to research Tom Gordon is that Trisha loves a relief pitcher. That is Tom Gordon's position. And what's interesting is most kids, when they really start liking baseball, they love the power hitters, the home run kings, the guys who always score a lot of runs. Um, but Trisha is smitten for a guy who isn't a full-time pitcher. He's someone who closes the game and makes sure the team wins and so it's an interesting choice when we really look at it because he's not really on the mound for very long if it goes well but um, i'm going to discuss this in a little bit more detail when we talk about what's unique and the notion of what a save is in baseball i'll explain that if you're not familiar but uh, they they bring in relief pitchers when the team is in the lead, when they're doing well, and it's to make sure they win because a regular pitcher can't pitch a full game. Their arm gets tired by um, a little after sixth or seventh inning. So if the team's ahead, you need to bring in a fresh arm. And so Tom Gordon was, of course, a real-life pitcher who played for Boston in from 1996 to 1999. Looks like he retired from the sport around 2009, but while King was writing this book, he reached out to him and asked if he could use his name. Of course, Tom graciously agreed, um, and so it looks like Tom may actually have two sons who are also professional ball players. So I think one of them um, plays for Miami, and I'm not sure about the other one, but it's neat to have a real-life guy. Um, I also read that Tom Gordon was going to be adapted for the screen, as is, I think, <laughs> many of the King works, but I hope they do that because, oh man, that would be amazing. So um, I, I think that was around 2018, 2019 where they said that. So if you guys know of anything about Tom Gordon being adapted, please let me know. But let me go to our summary and we'll get us started here. So Trisha McFarland is a baseball-loving nine-year-old when she wanders off the trail on a weekend Appalachian hike and disappears into the forest of western Maine. Trisha's only source of hope is her battery-powered Walkman where she tunes into the Boston Red Sox summer game schedule and her favorite relief pitcher Tom Gordon and his game saves. Day after day, Trisha struggles to stay alive as her snack supply diminishes, her injuries increase, and something she can't quite see seems to be following her, watching her as she tries to stay alive and return to her family. 
So in this episode, we're going to explore what's unique. We'll look at the character of Trisha, some text from the novel that I really liked, and then we're going to bounce over to my favorite parts of the novel, what I feel is working, um, what I had questions about, and we'll conclude from there. Um, because this is a short book, I've decided that we are going to explore some spoilers on the ending because it's a little bit, it's such a simple story that we have a 50-50 does she make it, does she not, and I think it makes the investigation richer if we do connect it to the final outcome. So I will be exploring the ending just a heads up. So if you haven't read The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, it's only a little over 200 pages if you wanted to blaze through it really quick and then listen, because uh, I am going to be discussing spoilers. But uh, if not, definitely save it for another time. But if everybody's ready, let's let the players take the field and get in position. And please join me in our next section. friends let's start the ball game now that we've got our seats and our peanuts in hand let's explore what's unique about the girl who loved Tom Gordon so I think I may have forgot to mention in the introduction this novel was released in 1999 so the actual Boston Red Sox World Series would not be won until 2004 when the curse of the great Bambino aka Babe Ruth was broken after 86 years. You can google slash wikipedia more about that if you're unfamiliar with it. But what I want to discuss, um, I'm going to talk about sort of the late 90s stuff in the later section, but I have three areas of this novel that I'd like to explore with you. And one of my favorite things and the first sort of topic I have here is the structure. So what's really interesting about this survival narrative is how it's broken up like a baseball game into nine innings. So each chapter we have have uh, present in the story is one of the nine innings. So what I also enjoy is that it operates on that level of increasing intensity, very much like a baseball game when the teams each get a chance to score and then they're leveling against each other sort of inning by inning and the pressure of the game ramps up a little bit. So for example, during Trisha's journey, she experiences some wins and some really fortuitous, lucky occurrences, and yet the forest gets its licks in as well against Trisha in a sort of scoring a point for their side in a small, subtle way. So Trisha is in a game for survival with the forest and it really reads like that, like a match between she and the forest and it really channels the man versus nature device so, so well. So if that is um, something that you're interested in, the sort of, the sort of um, man versus nature 
um, theme present. This one just has it in spades. So as we progress through the novel, we kind of see the forest wins one, Trisha wins one. And I kind of mentioned this example a little bit in the introduction, but the strongest example is when Trisha is dying of thirst. She's really, really dehydrated and she has no moisture in her mouth and she finds a lovely flowing stream. It's cool and crisp and beautiful. She drinks it as much as she can and then she has afterward insane diarrhea and vomiting and depletes her electrolytes even worse than when she was dehydrated. So she just goes from bad to worse. So that's a little bit of scoring one for the Forest, unfortunately. The Forest being the other team, scored a run, and now it's Trisha who has to try and catch up and make a comeback. What I also noticed during this story, this is just kind of a maybe deep, deeper, nerdier exploration, but Trisha experiences the five stages of grief within the nine innings of the story. So according to psychology, the five stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I think we see Trisha go through all of these, all five of them, in reaction to the traumatic situation of being lost in the woods, disappearing into the forest, the loss of her family, the life she knows, just her nine-year-old existence disappears between these trees. And so in the first two innings, Trisha's really brave and bold, and she's consistently silencing the inner voice in her head. It's always speaking really negative, really doom-filled thoughts. It's really, really um, pessimistic. And she's completely denying the extremity of her situation. But as the hours stretch on, she gets really angry and kind of darts off and starts running and not even paying attention to the direction or the sun or anything like that. She just loses her head a little bit. She loses her mind. She starts running and freaking out and she almost falls off a cliff because she got so frustrated. Um, another part I think exudes this quite well is about 10 hours into the journey, it's now dark, she's soaking wet from a rainstorm, no shelter, but she has her Walkman and the Red Sox-Yankees game is in her little earbuds and she tells herself, if Tom Gordon makes the save, then I'll be saved. So we see that bargaining with fate in that moment and with herself and with her declining emotional state, she starts bargaining. Um, and then after that, when we have sort of night after night, uh, starts to pass by pretty quickly is where we find Trisha in deep sadness and bewilderment, consistently crying off and on, just hopeless and so devastated. But acceptance comes soon after when she faces the presence that's after her in the forest. So I'm going to discuss that more in the upcoming sections. But not only do we have nine innings operating very much like a real baseball game, but I also view the story in five acts, much like the stages of grief. So I just view Trisha's being lost in the woods as severe trauma, super duper childhood trauma, which that's where we really see King shine his brightest, like the brilliant star he is when he has childhood and trauma. And so we have this super traumatic situation with Trisha and 
Um, the acts, uh, the stages of grief aren't really linear. They are, for, uh, I would say the first half we do see all five, but then they kind of trudge back up again where we'll see her angry and then we see acceptance, but then we see denial again. And um, so they're kind of popcorning up all over this book, which is really interesting to just view her emotional state in those five stages. So that's my first point. My second area of what I feel is unique uh, in this story is the horror of nature. So as I kind of mentioned before, many King fans say that nothing scary happens in this book and it's often recommended to brand new King readers who really aren't interested in any sort of genre fiction or anything scary or something creepy to pop out at them. But I think, although it's very subtle, there's a lot of horror in this story. It's just not in the package we typically recognize it in. But if we really slow down our reading steps a little bit and really take it step by step with Trisha, inning by inning, we have a lot of horrifying man versus nature, guys. Really terrifying. If we were actually in the forest experiencing these events with our senses, we would really conclude that we had arrived first class forest hell. Like, oh my god, you guys, the exposure that Trisha undergoes is straight up brutal. So, really quickly into the story, poor Trisha, she gets scratched to hell this poor baby she just gets so cut up she stumbles almost headfirst into a coiled black snake there are swarms of gnats and mosquitoes all over her especially all over her face they won't leave her alone they're like in her eyes and up her nose she nearly falls off a cliff her branches have poked and just ravaged her face. Her clothes are ripped. There's a torrential rainstorm. A bolt of lightning cracks right in front of her, splits a tree trunk. She's soaking wet. She's cold. And this is in the first four innings, guys. The first four innings um, and the first, I want to say, less than 10 hours of her being lost. And bless her heart, it just gets so much worse for Trisha as her journey continues. And get this, folks, Trisha has nothing in her backpack where she can make a fire. Nothing. I think that a lot of us are used to in these sort of survival narratives, um, especially like man versus wild, he always finds a way to make a fire or there's always some sort of flint or a lighter or something where they make a fire and there's always this wonderful castaway moment where he makes a giant bonfire and everyone feels warm and hopeful and encouraged. But yeah, no, not for Trisha. She can't do any of that. Little baby girl is by herself with no fire. So the forest and the outdoor elements really take on a very diabolical nature in this book. And thank God it's early June for Trisha, otherwise she would have just not lasted the night if it were cold. Also, she doesn't have a watch. Um, her little Walkman, which is such a beautiful source of joy and strength for her, um, is pretty much all she has, but the batteries aren't gonna last forever. So it's, she's really cautious with it. She treats it like absolutely precious gold and she's really mindful to not waste the batteries, but she knows they're not gonna last forever. So it's a very ephemeral source of relief for her, but 
when I was reading this book, I am, you know, I'm someone who does not enjoy camping unless I'm in a wonderful, glamorous RV. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty addicted to creature comforts, as I think most of us are in the 21st century, and, you know, I appreciate nature immensely. I love uh, a nice little part-time uh, sojourn for a while, but if you can imagine, there is nothing worse than when you're hurt or sick or cold and you are completely removed from any 21st century conveniences. Um, it's really incredibly humbling and King really puts Trisha through hell, which we're going to talk more about later in our later sections of what's working well, but the horrors of nature, guys. This is a horror novel. <laughs> it's just not in the typical package, but dang, this forest is brutal. So my third area I wanted to explore with you guys is a really fun one. I liked this one a lot. And uh, this novel exudes a lot of subtle spirituality. So one of the main themes we see in Trisha's very harrowing journey is holding on to hope. Uh, we find out from the text that Trisha, Trisha has no religious roots. Her mom is a lapsed Catholic and her father seems a bit agnostic um, about the approach of God in heaven and a divine being, but no one is attending church in her life. So she's got very, very small connections to prayer and doctrine, but she does know the, the Our Father prayer, most likely from her mom. But other than that, she doesn't really have much herself. Um, all what we kind of see in Trisha's journey is she really sort of discovers it for herself and it's sort of revealed to her, which is really compelling and very interesting. Um, for example, on that first night when Trisha is listening to the Red Sox game, we learn about a moment where she asked her dad if he believed in God, and it's an interesting flashback because he's somewhat drunk when he tells her because he's in the first year of a divorce from Trisha's mom, not handling it well, and he beats around the bush and says that technically no, he doesn't believe in a conventional God and hell and judgment. But what he does believe is something called the sub-audible, which he can't really explain, but he just calls it an unknowable force that's that's good. It's just a force for good. And so when Trish is alone on that first night, she's recalling this and she remembers something she loves about Tom Gordon is that when he wins a game or earns a save, in quotes, as it's called in baseball, meaning the pitcher stops the opposing team from advancing with hits or runs. Basically, they keep the lead. Um, it's, it's super poetic when we have little Trisha contemplating Tom Gordon's saves. Um, because when Tom Gordon makes a save, it's very poetic and coincidental for our novel, but she likes how Tom Gordon will point toward the sky. That's what he does when he gets a save, and he did this in real life. I YouTubed it. But he points to the sky, and this thing he does, this motion toward the sky, just fills her with immense hope and comfort, which is really touching because these benevolent forces don't have the conventional vocab attached to it for her, like angels or heavenly spirits. 
she doesn't really associate that with them. She doesn't use those words. It's just forces of good. And for Trisha, Tom Gordon is indicating that there is a source of good out there for her. Um, and I just love that. I, there's a lot of innocence and heart and simplicity in that. Uh, it's a really powerful scene um, for Trisha to be recalling that. She's soaking wet. She's covered in really painful wasp stings. She's got all kinds of cuts and bruises. She is busted up in every way a little human can be. And her heart gravitates to her favorite relief pitcher and how he points to the sky after a save. So for me, if you're patient with it, it's very touching. And what's also cool is just the really subtle hand uh, in which he uses it because after Trisha is sick from the water, her health is declining, as I mentioned previously, she finds those berries and the beech nuts to uh, sustain her. But what happens, the text alludes to, is that she, uh, they make her hallucinate. And shortly after we encounter the beech nuts, uh, Trisha's pretty regularly hallucinating and it gets much worse as we continue on. But the delicate hand is in these otherworldly spiritual moments she seems to encounter along the way because it doesn't get too hippy-dippy or too overly sort of saccharine with religious tones because I think as the reader in the back of our mind we have that logical frame of this poor little girl is just tripping balls like she's just she's really um hallucinating and she's also under the influence of beech nuts which I believe kind of have might have a sort of hallucinatory effect um, but also the exposure and her starvation and her dehydration she has a couple of these moments where it's subtle because you as the reader could just say this is all a dream or this is all a hallucination so it definitely keeps the reader guessing and grounded in my experience because there were moments where i wanted to sort of float away with trisha's observations and what she was imagining and i thought it was real but then the back of my mind would say i don't know if it is real um, because she's so compromised um, by nutrition and exposure and all the things. Also, this is a fun one. Um, totally random, might not work, but I'm just gonna serve it up for you guys anyway. For my Norse mythology fans out there, Trisha is out in the wilderness for, a little bit of a spoiler, but nine days total. So nine is a very sacred number in Norse mythology, specifically concerning the Allfather Odin, King of the Gods. Thor's dad for uh, you Marvel fans out there but Odin hung on the great tree Yggdrasil for nine days to receive knowledge and understand the runes so nine is a sacrifice number it's a pretty sacred number um, it's also half of 19 which King fans know about but totally coincident it might just be totally coincidental as I'm sure King was lining up the nine days, most likely for each inning in baseball, but you never know because I think Trisha sacrifices quite a bit to the forest, um, especially of just being a young, sweet, innocent little girl uh, who's now fighting for her life. Um, 
And in the final moments on the page, I think we really see Trisha's sacrifice for sure. But a fun Norse connection, if it does work, it might not, um, we can explore there. And if you are a fan of the novelist Neil Gaiman, as I am, one of my all-time favorite novels, which is when I'm not reading King, I'm reading Neil Gaiman, but American Gods is an incredible Neil Gaiman novel and has a very true-to-life interpretation of the hanging of Odin via one of its characters. So check that out if you're interested in Norse mythology. Um, is a, there's also a pretty good decent adaptation of American Gods, the show, on Stars. if um, you have read the novel and you hadn't seen the show yet. But So for my recap, for my three elements that I feel is working very uniquely inside The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, the first one is structure, the second is the horror of nature, so scary, and then the third is subtle spirituality. So I do have one uh, I have a couple areas of the text, so we'll see which ones fight it out to be read, but I did want to read you some text. This is on page 44, and this is kind of highlighting, this is very early into Trisha's harrowing journey, but this is when uh, she's really sort of realizing she's in deep trouble. So this is um, a little at the start on page 44 in the American hardcover. She backed up, getting into the cover of the woods again. She knelt, opened her pack, and got out the blue poncho. She put it on, better late than never, her father would have said, and sat on a fallen tree. Her head was still woozy, and her eyelids were all swollen and itchy. The surrounding woods caught some of the rain, but not all of it. The downpour was too fierce. Trisha flipped up the poncho's hood and listened to the drops tap on it like rain on the roof of a car. She saw the ever-present cloud of bugs dancing in front of her eyes and waved at them with a strengthless hand. Nothing makes them go away, and they're always hungry. They feed on my eyelids when I was passed out, and they'll feed on my dead body, she thought, and began to cry again. This time it was low and dispirited. As she wept, she continued waving at the bugs, cringing each time the thunder roared overhead. With no watch and no sun, there was no time. All Trisha knew was that she sat there, a small figure in a blue poncho, huddled on a fallen tree until the thunder began to fade eastward, sounding to her like a vanquished but still truculent bully. Rain dripped down on her, mosquitoes hummed, one caught between the inside wall of the poncho's hood and the side of her head. She jabbed a thumb against the outside of the hood and the hum abruptly stopped. There, she said disconsolately, that takes care of you, your jam. She started to get up and her stomach rumbled. She hadn't been hungry before, but she was now. The thought that she had been lost long enough to get hungry was awful in its own way. She wondered how many more awful things were waiting and was glad she didn't know, couldn't see. Maybe none, she told herself. Hey girl, get happy. Maybe all the awful things are behind you now. I like that one a lot. So I think we have time for, um, I'll save that one for the next section. I got one more for you. Um, that's 
in the similar vein of sweet baby Trisha realizing that it's not looking good but I enjoy the tone um, and the realization that King is bringing to Trisha in that moment but at this point in time boys and girls we've got a couple runs uh, on the scoreboards so let's head into our next section which is character analysis everybody thank you for staying with us we have reached the seventh inning stretch of our thorough investigation of the girl who loved Tom Gordon so before I talk about some of the characters we see in this novel I did want to mention the fact that I'm the proud owner of the 2004 pop-up book of the girl who loved Tom Gordon um, that was released a few years after publication and what's really sort of fun about the pop-up book is not only is it just a really cool sort of precious little exhibition of some of the best scenes of this book but it kind of harkens to the the cool sort of foundation that Tom Gordon is also much like the other novel we explored recently, The Institute, that it's very close to being a YA story. It really has the potential to be a young adult novel. The I believe I heard this on a different podcast that explored it where they mentioned that there's some profanity sort of sprinkled throughout and the publishers asked King, yo, if you omit some of the profanity that Trisha and the people around her kind of exude, we can have this in elementary school shelves, we can really sort of get a wider reading audience for this, and he declined. He kind of just was like, nope, not interested in that, which I kind of love. I think that um, he just really wanted to keep the integrity of the story and I'm kind of glad he didn't even though I do feel a younger reader would enjoy this journey. I think it's power and the deep layers are reserved for an older reader. Um, but this pop-up book is so precious and if you're a fan of Tom Gordon like myself you have to have it for your collection it's a really unique in the way they sort of layered the pages with hidden pockets and inserts and very clever uh, if you're someone who likes sort of copy and layout and sort of clever ways of packaging something um, I love it and they really brought the best moments of the novel to these little cutouts with the forest, with the truck, with the um, the fish, and uh, they kind of show, and uh, I think it gets in its own page entirely, Trisha's little Walkman, and then we also have Tom Gordon looking exactly like the real Tom Gordon. So um, if you are a collector, 
of your favorite titles like myself, highly recommend that you get your hands on the 2004 Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon pop book. It is on my lap as we speak and I just love looking at each page and it's so cute because there's little square boxes of text and then you kind of peel up the corner a little bit and it accordions out so I'm super nerding out for the pop-up book. But Let's go ahead and dive into the small cast of characters we have in this very short little book. Uh, Trisha's family is a good one to kind of introduce just to get the main sort of foundation of this little girl's life. We have uh, dad and mom Larry and Quilla, Larry McFarland and then Quilla Anderson McFarland and then we have 13 year old older brother Pete McFarland. Um, at the beginning of the story, it's we find out as the reader, Larry and Quilla have been divorced for about a year, and older brother Pete is not adjusting well, so there are a lot of arguments between he and mom, and it is because of one of Pete and mom's arguments that causes them to not pay attention to Trisha when she's on the trail and sort of lagging behind. She's trying to find a place to pee, and that's kind of how this whole mess gets set into motion is everybody's just involved in their own personal turmoil and Trisha slips through their um, their gaze. Uh, what's kind of nice is we do get the mention of Trisha's best friend. Her name is Penelope Robichaud, or Robichaud, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. But what's so cute is her nickname is Pepsi, so I love that. So there's mention of like, Pepsi would say this, or I can't wait to tell Pepsi. So that's her best friend. And what's really defining when we kind of look at Trisha's memories of her friend Pepsi is that... Trisha seems to be much more of the follower and Pepsi the leader. Uh, Pepsi is sort of the bold, brash, makes all the decisions for them, and Trisha is just kind of happily by her side and picking up her coattails. Uh, much more of a quieter accomplice, and she gives Pepsi all the reins. And this is what's really fascinating as we kind of dive into Trisha's character, because when we first meet her, at nine years old, she's just getting really hit hard with some traumatic and intensely harrowing exposure to the elements and she's just really right off the bat getting involved in a hard fight for survival. But before, in those sort of early innings of the novel, she seems to be someone who is exhibiting a lot of stress from her family's divorce, but in a very quiet, collective, hold it in all together way. Um, she doesn't seem to be as emotionally volcanic as her brother, uh, and she herself seems like someone who's buried the pain of it and the whole thing just annoys her. Just really annoyed by her brother and her mom, annoyed that she has to go to a da her dad's separate home on the weekends. Um, so I think the real pain and devastation and, and loss of her parents' divorce hasn't quite yet manifested in a huge emotional blowout with Trisha that we know of. Uh, she just seems sort of really irritated by the whole thing, and I think she's burying maybe a lot of those emotions. Um, 
And however, during the period where Trisha's lost, what's also kind of interesting is in the early stages of her being lost, she gets really nauseous, she seems very, uh, she faints over gross and frightening things. She's very much kind of a delicate flower. She's very young and that youth really shows in those early innings. Um, but what's interesting is really quickly Trisha becomes quite battle-hardened by the elements and facing the dark and the terrifying things that grown people would have run from in the dark forest at night. And I think it's after that first night that she survives just so much, just a thunderstorm and being attacked by bugs and uh, just realizing she's in real trouble. So I like the fact that with Trisha, we do sort of see this young girl who hasn't fully processed the emotions of her parents' divorce, and whereas her older brother is just exploding all over the place, I think Trisha's really holding it in very tightly. And then when she's in the forest by herself, that sort of weakness and vulnerability and her youth is very apparent at first. She's just very squeamish and not very strong and then all of a sudden she just has to become strong and so there's some fascinating little moments if you're really looking closely at Trisha if you're really looking at each transition and looking at her emotional state and her thought process you really see this girl grow up and become very strong very fast so Trisha's quite fascinating for someone who we mostly just observe what's happening to her we don't get a large scale of what's going on in her mind or in her heart. She doesn't really uh, black and white explain this is how mom and dad's divorce makes me feel. All of that is deeply buried in her. But what we see is just this immense bravery and this uh, emotional vulnerability come out, this longing to, uh, I think that's why she cleaves to her Walkman so tightly. She cleaves to the baseball game. She gets really involved in cheering for the Boston Red Sox. And so her emotions are sort of manifesting in these different ways and then there's of course a lot of crying she does cry quite a bit and I'm really glad that King puts that in there just to kind of remind everyone of just how youth youthful she is which I also really liked if you guys haven't read uh, the episode read <laughs> if you haven't read the Institute or listen to the episode on the Institute I also talk about how I love how King uh, makes these young kids that are around 12 and under I think nobody's older than 16 uh, really show how much they cry and how much the youthful soul is still processing pain and we're not yet calloused and uh, hardened to the point where tears are a very real and regular part of growing up and so I appreciate that King grounds us all with these emotional moments where our characters are physically crying and often I think it kind of reminds everybody nobody is superhuman and this situation is really painful and sucks quite a bit. But another sort of, this is a just a side little observation uh, to 
to not only Trisha's character but the novel as a whole is we've got late 90s Trisha and this is more of an investigation of pop culture but I do think it contributes to Trisha's character in uh, a large way um, because King is just the king of pop culture I don't know how he does it I, I always say that but I truly am mystified I really wonder if he just has somebody on his payroll who just keeps him plugged in to all the things but I personally have a huge soft spot for 1998-1999, uh, the year he's writing in, and he just sort of awakens the inner 90s kid in me, and some of the ways he does that, we have some fantastic little mentions here from the late 90s. Uh, in Trisha's backpack, she is carrying some Surge soda for you 90s kids. Um, Surge was on the market for not very long, if I remember correctly, but but it was marketed as having way too much caffeine and parents should really be concerned because it's double the caffeine of, of say Mountain Dew but when I remember it, it tasted exactly like Mountain Dew it just had a slightly greener tinge rather than a full-on yellow tinge but I just remember everyone getting freaked out because there's too much caffeine but I didn't, I just thought Mountain Dew tasted better. Um, in Trisha's Walkman, she has the <laughs> unforgettable, unkillable uh, album by the band Chumba Wumba, which uh, hopefully you guys remember or don't remember. You're not missing much because it's just ridiculous. But there was this song on the radio all the time called Tub Thumpin', and it is the most obnoxious horrible song but we all adored it and we all danced to it and i vividly remember uh, a seventh grade dance where that was featured quite prominently but i love that that's mentioned as as being something that she and pepsi are listening to there's also the mention of the movie Flubber, which was a Robin Williams remake of the 1960s Disney movie. Super fun and cute of just this green blobby goo. Uh, what I, I super loved that he mentioned all the tween girls that were in love with the movie Titanic because that was a huge sort of movement in our culture when um, the boy bands were we had NSYNC and Backstreet Boys right around that time and then we had this amazing love story in this epic Oscar winning film that these young girls just myself included we did not know what to do with we just <laughs> did not know what to do with the power of that romance and yeah there's a lot of swooning going on for quite a bit of time and then there's a uh, mention of the Spice Girls who I still unashamedly proudly listen to but I, I love hearing these little mentions it was a really wonderful nostalgia and memory lane but overall it's just nice to read about kids before cell phones and before the internet swallowed us and ate us whole like the fish that Trisha catches later on in the book uh, it's just refreshing looking back 20 years ago there's no mention of likes or followers or being an influencer or apps or any of these buzzwords that are absolutely our life now um, I like that 20 years ago it was less connected um, I like that uh, we've got a nine-year-old girl who 
does not have an iPad or a TikTok account and I enjoy these things, not knocking them at all, but I guess it was just really nice being in this small space with Trisha and encountering all these nostalgic touches. And uh, as I mentioned previously, the meditative quality of this novel, especially if you're a child of the 90s or an adult who remembers the trends or just life before the internet, it's just nice to see it subtly woven in there. And I also really enjoy what King does with teen girls or tween girls right around that 11 through 13, 14 kind of arena. He gets into that sweet little cute area of liking boy bands and best friend stuff and I'm just in love with how he does it and we see this same kind of fun teen girl exploration where it's really PG rated it's nothing overly sexualized or creepy. He just has such a delicate, subtle hand of painting a realistic teenage girl, um, but in a very innocent way. And we see this really strongly with the character of Abra, Abra Stone in Dr. Sleep, who is featured prominently throughout that novel for her extra special, extra strong dose of shine. And she works with Danny Torrance quite a bit in that book, which is such a great one. I need to do that one for the podcast. So we're going to look at Dr. Sleep here pretty soon. But I believe Abra Stone is around 11 or 12. But I do enjoy the subtle yet really dead-on uh, exploration of being a young tweenager or teen girl. Uh, I like what he does with that quite a bit. So if you grew up, uh, if you are of the millennial generation and you remember life before the internet, I really uh, recommend, especially uh, if you enjoyed the late 90s, uh, Trisha's Journey is quite a bit of fun. So before we head in to our last section of the exploration, I do have one more textual example for you. I just wanted to share a little bit more of some of the great details King uses to discuss Trisha's journey. So this is actually on page 46, so not too, too far from our last, uh, but I just wanted to... Uh, talk more about sort of the beginning stages of Trisha starting to realize it's not looking good and uh, how her brain is suddenly shifting from I'm I was a normal girl uh, on the trail not too long ago and now I need to start rationing and now I need to start thinking about how I'm gonna get myself out of here so this is the um, this is page 46 she allowed herself three big gulps of soda took the bottle away from her mouth belched took another two fast swallows then she recapped the bottle securely and debated over the rest of her supplies she decided on the egg she shelled it careful to pull the pieces of shell back to, careful to put the pieces of shell back in the baggie the egg had come in it never occurred to her then or later that littering any sign that she'd been there might actually save her life and sprinkled it with a little twist of salt 
Doing that made her sob briefly again because she could see herself in the Sanford kitchen last night, putting salt on a scrap of wax paper and then twisting it up the way her mother had shown her. She could see the shadows of her head and hands thrown by the overhead light on the Formica counter. She could hear the sound of the TV news from the living room, could hear creaks as her brother moved around upstairs. This memory had a hallucinogenic clarity that elevated it almost to the status of a vision. She felt like someone who drowns, remembering what it was like to still be on the boat, so calm and at ease, so carelessly safe. She was nine, though nine going on ten and big for her age. Hunger was stronger than either memory or fear. She sprinkled the egg with salt and ate it quickly, still sniffling. It was delicious. She could have eaten another easily, maybe two. Mom called eggs cholesterol bombs, but her mom wasn't here and cholesterol didn't seem like a very big deal when you were lost in the woods, scratched up, and with your eyelids so swollen by bug bites that they felt weighed down with something. Flour paste stuck to the lashes, perhaps. So I really liked that line about being someone who's drowning and you just remember the safety of the boat and I really liked the visceral quality of being so uncomfortable and afraid in your present environment and reality that all you can do is think about where you were and how did it all go so wrong and how did you get here when just a few hours earlier you were in your parents kitchen and you were just those moments that we take for granted and I love that King explores that a little bit in such a young mind and a young package such as Trisha's so I really enjoy the reflective nature we see uh, in, in young Trisha as things start to get pretty gnarly. But we do not have a large cast in this novel. It's relatively small. So uh, having said that, Trisha's just going to be our main focus from here on out. And I'm going to discuss more about how she really shines bright in the latter innings and in the final half of this novel. So hang out with me. Hopefully we have a couple more runs on base, one or two more hum runs. And I will see you in our next and final section, what's working and what's not. Okay, everybody, we have made it to the bottom of the ninth, and the socks are up by three. Tom Gordon's been called to the mound. We have three runners on base, and our batter has a full count. So that's a little bit of baseball tension for you fans out there. Uh, yours truly played until she was 16, and then uh, told my dad I wanted to hang up my glove because I wanted to be uh, like all the other girls painting their nails and going to the mall so <laughs> but I still have a lot of fun going to live games of my home team but we have made it to the last section of this precious little book I love so much where we're going to explore 
what I feel is really working well, is very strong and represented with great sort of emotional force and literary power. And then I do have one or two questions and then we'll sort of conclude our investigation of this sweet little book. So one of, uh, I have three topics I'd like to mention about what I feel is working really well with you. And the first one is kill your darlings. So I believe William Faulkner said this exact sort of quote about that. But what kill your darlings is in the world of fiction is that uh, you really want to use this device to put your characters through hell to see what they're made of. Uh, Steve himself in his memoir on writing really goes into detail of what a powerful and useful device this is when you're creating characters and crafting fiction. But it's essentially what he does with the character of Trisha to see what she's made of and this poor little girl guys, this poor little girl just gets wrecked by the forest. She is one big, swollen, hurting, dehydrated, bleeding little person. She she gets rained on, she has no shelter, she falls down a really steep and rocky hill, she gets really banged up, relentlessly attacked not only by mosquitoes, uh, but wasps, she gets sick, she struggles to find food, and then she's being hunted as well. So Steve King just puts her through hell, and the realism of everything that gets hurled at this little girl makes it a compelling narrative, because you as the reader are really cheering for her. You're really hoping that Trisha makes it, you are really cheering that she stays alive and endures every trial that comes at her. So the Kill Your Darlings, I think, is so well executed in this little book because our poor little Trisha is just this vulnerable, almost as if you would see a vulnerable little animal that's so small and defenseless and it's it's a little bit uh, of like a lamb to the slaughter, uh, for lack of a better expression, because this poor gentle creature is just facing insurmountable odds and that's little Trisha. She's, she's young and alone and with very little supplies and I think that's the key thing here is she has so little to help her so I, uh, I really enjoy how Kill Your Darlings is being utilized and what I teach my students in fiction is this exact thing. Of course there's a balance, you know, I think that with a lot of fiction writers they really put their characters through some very intensely difficult situations, but I always say you have to balance. It has to benefit them in the end, it has to make them stronger, it has to do something that, you know, sort of gives them that immunity and that inner strength and we as the reader need to see that and I think we we do in the final moments of the novel which I will talk about in just a few minutes but my second point that I did want to talk about 
with you guys is Trisha as the final girl and final girl is in quotes it's really sort of um, it should all of your spidey senses if you're a horror movie fan should be up and uh, alive so the final girl if you are well versed in horror fiction especially in film the final girl is the heroine who usually survives but what's typically very cool as we see in a lot of horror films she faces down her monster she faces and confronts the evil that is hunting her and the evil that has usually killed everybody else. So this could be your uh, quintessential slasher uh, in a slasher movie or the monster and Trisha is really the final girl in this little novel. Um, though it's not, you know, the conventional horror movie, I really do feel the sinister, evil, <laughs> oppressive force of the forest um, has just taken Trisha to the brink and she's in the final moments almost dead bless her heart she's just really barely alive but yet she has enough fortitude and bravery to face down the literal monster who is a creature that I'm going to talk about a little bit more in this next section about questions but she confronts it and she makes a stand and she sort of channels Tom Gordon in that moment and when I read that I was like oh my god Trisha's the final girl I really see her in that moment of utter bravery and she is actually embracing her own death at that point which I think all final girls do they just get to that last stand when they're like no I'm not running anymore I'm going to face you I'm going to try to kill you and I don't care at this point if you kill me back sort of so to speak like I'm willing to sacrifice my life to try and stop you and I think Trisha does that when she confronts this creature that's been hunting her from the very beginning and spying on her and frightening her and she's she's so delirious she's so depleted um she just decides to make this last stand and she stands and standing as we king fans know is a prominent theme throughout his work is when you have no strength left and nothing nothing else in the tank there's courage and we stand so I love that so much there's so much power in the final moments with Trisha and the creature so before I talk about the actual creature I did want to explore my third point which is objects I think the objects that King brings to Trisha's life are working so so well in taking on a very very powerful spotlight quality because she's so young and little and alone in the vast forest without end and the things she has in her on her immediate person really become quite hyper focused for the reader and so I just feel they're working so well they have this very powerful spotlight as we read them so some of the items that I feel are operating the best is the first one is the strongest item and that is her Walkman um, Trisha's Walkman is most definitely her source of hope. It's everything to her. It's her lifeline, it's her little totem of safety, and 
her connection to life and remembering that, you know, all is not lost, she's okay. Uh, to hear the voices of the sports announcers, it just takes her imagination far away from her reality. And so it, it just gives her that transporting quality of even though she's cold and alone and it's pitch black and she's afraid, listening to the voices of the sports commentators and hearing what Tom Gordon is doing just fills her with hope. Um, this is also a very, I, I, just the Walkman in general, or it kind of reminded me of my own portable CD player I got for my birthday when I was nine, and I, it was, it's till, to this day, one of the best gifts I've ever received in my life. Um, I think it's the reason I adore CD so much, but I, I got a portable Discman, and I, remember just it had this absolute holy quality for me. I felt like a big kid. I felt so cool and I think I got in trouble one time and got grounded and my father took it away and losing that just gutted me. And so um, Trisha with her little Walkman and her Discman, um, I it was very poignant for me uh, having a personal connection but also just realizing how uh, your your little device with your music on it and especially in high school if you guys remember just escaping into music and putting in your headphones um, when you're exhausted and you hate school there's something so transportive about disappearing into a, a little world which is hopefully what we're all doing listening to podcasts but um, I loved Trisha's Walkman and I think it's the strongest little holy totem and every time it shows up in the text I think it just has this blight bright pardon me this bright glowing light of like oh my god it's the Walkman um, because Tr Trisha it becomes otherworldly and this symbol of, of hope for Trisha the next sort of item we have out of, I think I have four, um, including the Walkman, her backpack. Uh, we have uh, a wonderful description of food earlier in the investigation. We've got her tuna sandwich, she has a hard-boiled egg, Twinkies, celery sticks, potato chips, her water bottle, she has a bottle of Surge soda, and then when those run out, she fills her backpack with checkerberries and beech nuts. And so having in a cataloged sort of itemized uh, list of what's in her backpack you I find found myself as the reader really sort of cataloging everything like oh well she still has celery and she still has a little bit of chips left just because everything in that backpack suddenly became so essential and knowing she would have to ration it as she went forward um, also had that sort of immense spotlight quality I also really enjoyed Trisha's blue poncho. Um, so this is another really important one. Uh, very visual item because it's bright blue. Um, and so you think about the vast and massive trees and forest and this this little blue sort of blobbous uh, amorphous shape bobbing along. Um, the poncho being just plastic gets destroyed pretty quickly, but even though it's completely intact, Trisha uses it as a blanket, she uses it to catch fish, even though it's really quite destroyed very quickly, uh, it really becomes multi-purpose and very essential and she uses these shreds 
of a blue poncho to to make it and so even those blue shreds become quite precious as we progress with Trisha through the rest of the story and then my last sort of object or item that Trisha has with her is her baseball hat so she's wearing a Boston Red Sox jersey with Tom Gordon's number on it but she has her Boston Red Sox baseball cap that her dad mailed in and got autographed for her by Tom Gordon and not only is it always on her head but she uses it to filter water from some of some of the puddles when she gets sort of deeper into her walk. Uh, the autograph from Tom Gordon is sort of bright and vivid at first, but uh, as her time in the wilderness increases, it just sort of becomes this smeared black smudge. And so that's a source of sadness for Trisha, but um, the in combination with her Walkman, the sort of holy token and the power of the baseball cap, it's they become so key to her identity and making it through. So I just love that she wears the cap backwards, she uses it to um, uh, consistently make it through day by day uh, and the filtering of water I love so I loved Trisha's baseball hat and the story that um, Trisha's father really supports her love of baseball and got it signed for her so there's that connection to her family as well and Tom Gordon so super precious super in the spotlight and so anytime these items came up I just sort of hyper focused on them because of how essential they were to Trisha's journey so my recap for the three areas of the text I really feel are working well is we have the kill your darlings uh, of poor little Trisha just getting absolutely beat down by nature. Trisha as the final girl being so brave and facing down her monster, facing down this creature who I will talk about here more in just a second. And then objects. We've got four areas in Trisha's life um, on her immediate person that just get her through and toward the end where the Walkman has run out of batteries, the ponchos in tatters, the, the, the baseball cap is just filthy and she can't even see Tom's signatures anymore. All of, all of that just sort of take, has this when she has this wonderful quality of they didn't abandon her and those are the things that are still with her um she she still has all of these things at the end so uh very precious i really just enjoyed the hyper focus of how important these little insignificant things became as we see them utilized in incredibly crucial survival methods for sweet trisha so I do have one sort of big question and I didn't talk too much about this area of the story. There's definitely a shift um, about, I want to say, three quarters into the novel where we are focusing a little bit less on Trisha's survival and more on this presence or this ominous being that is hunting slash stalking Trisha. So 
In the final inning of the story, we're in the bottom of the ninth inning, uh, Trisha comes face to face with a villain character known as the God of the Lost. And this is sort of how it's referred to in some of the hallucinations that Trisha may, well, they may or may not have been hallucinations during Trisha's time in the forest, but the God of the Lost is slightly ambigu ambiguous due to her mental state um, being so compromised by exposure and starvation. Also, she's been hallucinating Tom Gordon, uh, her friend Pepsi, for several days at that point. But she does have an intense encounter with a physical huge bear um, that has wasp swarms in its eyes. And so we really sort of see that metaphysical terror. Um, and it could be her hallucinating or it very well could be real. So Trisha and the bear have this pretty epic stare down. And this next part is quite a doozy, friends. So a random citizen shoots the bear and it hits the, the bullet or the shell hits the bear. I'm pretty sure quite head on to the point where batteries fall out, presumably from its head, and the bear sort of runs off. So, um... <laughs> so thank heavens for other Stephen King podcasts because when I read this, it went right over my head what those batteries could have been. I was completely confused, you guys, and just brushed past it and I was like, I don't know, maybe there were batteries... I don't know, maybe it had some sort of collar on it, maybe it was being studied for science. I have zero clue. I have no idea why batteries would have flown out. Turns out, everybody, attention y'all, um, the bear is a creature named Shardik, and he is from the Dark Tower. And um, I... Uh, all I know, all I know, because I've never read Dark Tower, um, I have a couple other episodes where I talk about how I'm getting ready to read it, but haven't read Dark Tower yet, guys, but Shardik is a guardian of the beam, and I have like 20 question marks behind that. Uh, okay, I'm on board, but friends, let me ask you this, why is a Dark Tower bear in this story? Why? Is it just a fun cameo for King, or is there a deeper connective thread to Trisha? Uh, so my question is, is, is like, did Shardik the bear want to take Trisha to his dimension? Something to do with guarding the beam? Is Trisha somehow connected? So, Tower Junkies, help me, because why is Shardik the bear the god of the lost? Is the God of the Lost a messenger for the actual God of the Lost in the Dark Tower? Is 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 the God of the Lost something in the Dark Tower? Um, so that's like 10 questions, <laughs> but ultimately, why would King take us through this harrowing wilderness story only to insert this very strange character and maybe not have it mean anything at all? 
like is it just one of those random cameos where you know like Christine the the 1958 Plymouth uh, Plymouth Fury, I believe she shows up all over the place, everywhere. Christine is just always being driven by some sort of menacing presence. They especially love to insert Christine in television adaptations. But is this just like a Christine moment where it's just a random insert? Of, of of a bear of an I have heard from other tower fans that apparently there's 12 guardians of the beam and they're all somewhat animal in nature including Maturin who I think is the turtle from it again I, I can't go on too large of a tangent because I will nerd out feverishly and I haven't read tower yet but that's I guess that's what I'm wondering is why okay so assuming I have not read The Dark Tower. Um, I wonder why he would do that. Why would he kind of insert this very strange little microscopic moment that raises a lot of questions? And so it just makes me have more questions such as, is Trisha involved in The Dark Tower somehow? Um, I have you know, wh why is Shardik involved in Trisha's journey? Why is he on this plane? If he's a guardian of the beam, what is he doing here in our dimension or something like that? So I really feel very derpy sort of asking these questions because a tower junkie would know, like a tower reader would <laughs> probably know. So I would love your guys' help on this because I adore this little novel, but this last moment with Shardik the bear, um, I just don't know what to do with it. It's like, okay, this just opens up a huge can of worms for me. Is this just a, well, I guess my question for, for you Tower fans is, is this just a random cameo? Just a random like, oh, Shardik the Bear, hello. Or is this just a bigger thing? Like, is Trisha somehow part of the tower? Could she be? Is this a moment where she's being chosen? Is this sort of like a test she passed? So my inner fiction creator is just going nuts with the possibilities of what this could be. So I would adore wholeheartedly for any sort of tower help if any of you guys would like to message me on social media or write to me at underratedsk at gmail with your thoughts on why Shardik the Bear made an appearance because I definitely have mega mucho questions on the decision to kind of insert him and maybe it is just random maybe it is just like a random just uh, you know moment from tower and it's like a little sort of easter egg or a treat for tower heads like hey the shark the bear cool but me having not read the tower i'm just dying over here and i'm just like why is shark here why 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 so that's the mega big question is what's going on with that but overall i did love the sort of freaky nature of this creepy image of this bear covered in wasps. There are also three other creepy hooded priest-like figures in the forest. And again, King sort of suspends the disbelief of is Trisha just hallucinating all of this or is this genuinely really happening to her? Um, the citizen who shot the bear seems to think that it just was a regular bear. So maybe it was just Trisha in the eyes of a child seeing something that really wasn't there. Whereas the guy with the gun just saw it as a bear. So 
a little confused my friends i do need your help on this but overall i really loved the final moments of this last stand with trisha um uh, at the brink of death showing down uh and standing against the bear so overall there's very little that i find wrong with this book i i kind of talked about the exposition and the length which i think some people have um some king fans have a little bit of problem with uh or the feeling that the ending just wanting more because it's a wonderful happy ending it really is and i i just wonder when I talk with King fans about it, I think that they're either hungry for more or whatever sort of horrifying conclusion or final stand they wanted more out of it or um, being a short little book, I think it's just a challenge for a lot of King fans to um, realize that it's not going to be a full dinner. It's going to be some granola bar snacks, a little bit of trail mix, but the deeper message is there if we look. So my final thoughts on The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon is just a, a really sort of heartfelt plea that King fans should give this book a little bit more of a chance. Um, if you enjoyed The Institute, which came out in 2019, our main character, Luke Ellis, he has a wonderful escape through the woods where he gets pretty banged up. And so we have a lot of people out there who loved The Institute. And so if you loved The Institute, then you will adore The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon because it's definitely channeling that same sort of survival and youth and trauma and escape and uh, so I highly recommend that if maybe you blazed through Tom Gordon years and years and years ago as a King fan and you just sort of felt meh like nothing happened I really encourage a reread and to maybe slow it down a little bit and focus on those individual moments um, if you are a first-time King reader, I love this book, and I think it might be a nice introduction for sure, except when you get to the end with Shardik the Bear, then you might have some questions along with myself. Um, but Trisha is someone who I would love to read as an adult, because for me, I can't decide if she's someone who would have returned to the woods and really embraced it and been changed by it, or if she would have been so scarred and traumatized for life that she would never go into the forest again as long as she lives so what do you guys think about that what do you think that given her character what she would do because I love Trisha I love this novel so much I think I do have a little bit of a personal connection to it I also mentioned previously I do feel that females identify with it a little bit more as well but if we were present day Trisha would be close to 30 years old right now and I just was really hungry to know her as an adult um, because after making it through this spoiler alert she does make it through um, I just wonder this experience is definitely gonna change her for life she spent nine days out and went to the brink of death went to the edge of life and sanity and I'm so so curious as to what kind of woman that made her into and what kind of woman she is right now and Trisha's journey kind of reminded me of an awesome film I saw two years ago called Adrift with Shailene Woodley if you have seen it um it is based on a real-life living survivor named Tammy Oldham. She was caught in a Category 4 hurricane, 
I, I think this was in the early 80s, with her fiance. They were taking a yacht from Tahiti to San Diego and they got caught up in this crazy storm and he did not survive the storm, but she survived on the wreckage for 41 days at sea before a Japanese freighter discovered her. And what's, the, the movie's great, I really like the angle they took it, but what's really awesome and moving is that Tammy Oldham still sails to this day. She almost goes sailing like every single day and goes out on the water. And I, I wonder if Trisha would be like Tammy and if she would still go into the woods and maybe uh, sort of crave it now that she sort of conquered it in a way. But Trisha McFarland is a precious little girl who I think would be a wonderful character for Steve to bring back um, as an adult. I think she would be a great character to where he could take it either way. She could either, you know, have been really, really emboldened by her time in the wilderness to where she's not afraid of anything and made, maybe that made her make some reckless decisions in life. Or maybe um, it did the opposite and sort of make her appreciate life and make her very gentle and make her very humble and grateful at all times. So I'm so curious and I just love, um, I love that we share this time with this precious little soul and that she survives and she makes it and um, the ultimate wonderful sort of little theme whether or not you observe any kind of uh, religious belief but in this novel King writes that um, Tom Gordon always points to the sky because quote God always comes in in the bottom of the ninth and I love that whether you believe in universe or a force for good just knowing that even when all the chips are down and it's really looking bad there's still hope uh, in those ultimate moments that someone will come in at the bottom of the ninth and rescue you um, and what a beautiful fun sort of final note and the fact that Trisha lives is so encouraging and so powerful and the final moment and the final page of the book are super precious and I'll save that for all of you guys as you read this novel because you're gonna um, I really hope that what we've explored on this episode sort of gives you a little pep in your step to uh, either uh, explore a baseball game or um, explore this novel once more. So that's about all I have. Uh, I really just love this little book. There's not a lot I have to complain about. I know other people do uh, in terms of it missing some horror elements but it's there if we look closely for sure. So I love Trisha's journey. I really want to meet her as a 30 year old and I, oh, she's the best. So uh, thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode. I hope that wherever you are, it's, uh, <laughs> well, well. So um, I hope you're safe and having as good a time as we all can right now and uh hopefully you're reading something good and there are some you know sunny days that you can indulge in while we weather through these dark nights alone in the forest because that's how it feels feels a little bit like that um i don't think i'm alone in that sentiment but wherever you are stay safe take care and we will be meeting again soon with another bachman novel <laughs> so stay tuned and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.